You're welcome back anytime. We'll talk on the defensive side next time. I, you know, I wish somebody would. <laughs> I mean, I know the down people, and I know you know when to double, when not to, and I know that you got to front the post most of the time. And growing up, I'm noted as a defensive player. I wasn't a very good offensive player. I could play make, but I uh-huh. couldn't shoot. I couldn't <laughs> score. The reason I got rid out of the NBA and got to Europe was because I couldn't score. You were the all-time steals leader for a while, right, in Milan's history? There you go. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. The little known fact. They always said, you must have been a great shooter. No, I couldn't shoot with a day. I couldn't throw it in the ocean. But I could play defense because I played hard. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former NBA head coach of the Lakers, Rockets, Knicks, and Nuggets, Mike D'Antoni. Coach D'Antoni is here today to discuss the history, philosophy, analytics, and teaching points behind space and pace offense. And we talk honest conversations and challenging great players during the always fun start, sub, or sit. With members from the NBA to high school levels, we're excited to continue building a highly valuable learning and community platform called SG+. With SG+, we aim to bring the highest quality and deepest insights of the game from around the world on a weekly basis through our almost 600 video archive on SGTV, private coaching community app, in our long read Sunday morning newsletter. If you're looking to explore and learn the game on a deeper level, or just save yourself time searching the internet for the best backdoor plays in Europe, visit slappingglass.com today and see why current members are calling it an essential platform for high-level coaching anywhere. And now, please enjoy our conversation with coach Mike D'Antoni. Coach, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us. We're really looking forward to this today. Thank you for having me, guys. Absolutely. Something we'd love to dive in with you right away is space and pace, something you've coached and talked a whole lot about your whole career. And we'd love to get into some of the history of it, the building of it, how you coached it. I think a lot of us coaches that listen to this can visualize and see it in our minds, some parts of the offense. But wanted to start with maybe going back to your playing and coaching days in Europe. And what was it about the way or the style or the coaches that you saw over there that perhaps influenced you or made it to the point where you thought some style of play over there would work bringing it to the NBA? Well, you know, I think you're a product of your past and all the experiences that I've had kind of led me to the point that figured out how I thought when you have a team, how to play them the best way that they can perform. And also as a player, how do you treat people? How do you treat guys on the bench? How do you treat superstars? And, you know, I've kind of been in a role as a player. I was at the end of the bench, middle of the bench, first guy in, one of the best players on the team. So I've been in kind of each role. And from those experiences, how, and my personality is a little different. I needed confidence. I needed a coach to let me go, you know, and not structure me as much as a lot of coaches want to. A lot of coaches want to control everything and I never functioned well that way. And so kind of from your experiences as a player, you develop a philosophy. And I think every coach has to have a philosophy. It's, you know, things that you think, okay, this is the best way to play a team. Because you can kind of mimic anybody you want to. And I just didn't want to do that. I don't think it's predominant. I think every coach has a personality. He has to develop that. He has to be authentic and see where it goes. And then you have to have good players. I mean, at the bottom line, you still have to have good players. So I can talk all day and it's not going to change anything being bad players. But it started, you know, even in college when we were kind of a team that kind of unorthodox. We had a 6'5 center, 6'10 power forward, a shot from the three area. I don't think we had threes back then, but from that area, if we did, very fast, we pressed the whole game. We just ran the whole time. And from that, went to the NBA and I played for Doug Moe, who got up and down. So you learn from that. You learn from the ABA, which had the three-point shot, and other than being crazy. You learn from that. Probably my Italian experience was the best, just by playing, by having a coach that I think 
understood psychologically about players and helped them develop. He really brought me out of my shell, and I think he got the most out of me. Then you just put everything in together, see what you got on the floor. And there are certain bedrock principles that I have, you know, and that's playing with pace, whatever that means. It means different things for different people. James Harden plays at James Harden's pace. Steve Nash played at his pace. I'm not going to speed him up or slow him down. I can maybe up him a little bit, but James is going to go what is good for James. And I want that. So a lot of it depends on the personnel and not try to pound round peg into a square hole. It won't work. So you just try to make him the best player that he can be and try to figure that out, put him in a position where he's a superstar, whoever that he is, whether it's Jeremy Lin, Steve Nash, Chris Duhon. I mean, they've all had good years. It's easier for me as a point guard because I was a point guard, so I kind of understand that one. But a point guard could be anybody. Boris Dial was a point guard for us. He played center. You know, so it's, you know, whoever has the ball at that moment is a point guard. And if you can open up the game for him and give him confidence and say, hey, go for it, guys. And then the better the player, the better you play. That's just kind of been my philosophy all along. Coach, just one more on your philosophy, the history of it. Obviously, at the time you're talking about with Milan and stuff, just the pick and roll and how it was then, what it is now as far as just the tandem of slipping screens, reversing the angle, snaking, all, you know, all the stuff that players do now. Was that something that was going on then that you saw that you, know, you like to bring over or is that something that you know, has developed obviously with time here? So uh, is this fact checks or anything? Or we got to <laughs> no, no, you can say. So, <laughs> oh, no, I, I thought of everything myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, you just kind of look at the game and try to figure out my basic philosophy on that was whatever the defense is trying to make you do, don't do it. You know, like if they're forcing baseline, no, I'm getting to the middle. You know, if pick and roll, if the guy's going under, how can I make him not go under? Well, you know, we really stressed on the screener and how his last three steps into the screen, how important it is, the, the speed that he can hit the bottom of the pick. Because, you know, if you hit the bottom of the pick, he's not going under unless he goes so far under that. It's ridiculous. So we work on the angle of that pick. And so now when he goes over, you've created a two-on-one. And if you got a two-on-one, you got a good player. Then he's going to somebody's got to help. And you know what they're going to do. The defense is, you know, and the coach, you look and say, you know, okay, tag from the weak side and tag the guy and then get back out. Well, then you think, okay, what if he can't get back out? What if we push the guy up higher where we had Ryan Anderson and uh, Eric Gordon who can shoot that far out? Well, there's no way he's going to touch my center and get back out to there. Now the point guard's just got to make a good decision. So I'm either going to get a three or a layup, and you guys choose. Because the rest of it, you're not going to do it. If they trap, you have something for that. Okay, how can you beat the trap? And that's my short rolling. You short roll, get it to the center. And the center's got to be kind of a playmaker at that point because it's, again, three on two. And you go through each scenario. And so when they started switching, so we as a coaching staff, and I don't know if I came up with it, coaches came up with it, or it just evolves into it, our player. I give my player a lot of freedom go, well, what do you guys think? I, you know, how do you want to attack this? And so they're switching everything. So then we started slipping. So don't even set the pick. They're going to switch. Don't set it and go. See what that happens. Then it's, well, maybe we can flip it on the other side. If they're going to switch on the right side, come up like you're on the right side, they're ready to switch, flip it and go off. So just constantly try to do things the defense cannot guard. And I believe in my mind, and hopefully I project that to the players, and I'll tell them all the time. They're not gardeners. Whether we make shots or miss shots or turn it over, that's on us. But the defense cannot do anything to stop us. And we go with that belief, and like I said, then the players make it happen or not. Coach, kind of piggybacking off of these concepts or these ways you want to attack out of the pick and roll or attack the defense, when you go from your staff meetings onto the court, how are you implementing or building these concepts and repping them with your players? We did a lot of three on zero just to get the relationships between three guys on a strong side. And we would do that every practice. I don't believe as a coach, that's my belief, is that we do anything to warm up. We're doing something with our offense just to warm up, whether that's getting the ball in quick, getting our pace up, pushing the ball, you know, kicking the ball ahead, 
we warm up that way. So we tried to not waste. If I'm going to practice an hour and a half, try not to waste anything, not a minute, because I don't want my players on their feet listening to me talk. I mean, that doesn't help. And I've been a player. You don't listen to them anyway. <laughs> so it's more like repetition and doing, you know, get the basics down. Now, we're, we do our teaching mostly. We do some on the floor, but most of our teaching comes on video. You know, especially the newer generation, they play video games all the time. That's where they learn on video. So you can do it privately or with the team setting and you go through that with them and try to get them to visualize what we're talking about. Then when you get on the floor, it's just repetition after repetition. And, you know, we talked about, and we'll show them the center, you know, what your angle, your, are you going below the pick, stopping three quick steps to the bottom of the pick? And then can you hit that and get out? How fast can you do it? Some guys are better than that. David Lee might've been the best ever, how fast he could do it and get out. And then Chris Duhon, he's a good, great player, but not noted as a point guard. He has 23 assists, I think, in the garden. And he had an unbelievable point guard, never made a mistake. And so you just try to incorporate that. And then as you're on the floor, we would go not three on three. Then you throw coaches in. So coach, okay, now you're being center field. Let them read that. Now you're going to trap. Now you're going to strong hedge. Now you guys are going to switch. Players have to pick it up and by repetition and doing it and doing it and doing it, you hope they get it. You know, and it's not an easy process. It's not a process. Yeah, they got it tomorrow. Some guys pick it up quicker, but we just constantly pound the same theme, same thing. We don't try to switch it up on them. And this is how we're going to play and we we'll see how good we can get at it. Within these three on O's or these three on threes, how much of it was scripted or how much did you allow your players to explore so you could learn from them and then also maybe influence or find out something you weren't even thinking about or your staff was thinking about? That's a big part of, especially in our offense. You know, we will run 21s. We call it 21. They call it pistol or on the side. Yeah. So we tell our players, I just don't want to see the same thing. Don't do the same thing every time. Don't get the ball, throw it back. And, you know, it's like, Make something up. Yeah, we'll name it after you. We'll call that. So we got a national play and, and we got different guys would do something and go, oh, well, yeah, we can do that. And then you try to enhance that. So most guys will go what they can do, what they're comfortable with. And they will come up, you know, now it's getting a little harder because you see mostly yeah, they've done everything. You know, I don't know what else to do right now, but somebody will come up with something and you have fun at, it. you know, you're getting three shots up. You're trying to make a hundred shots. So as we go off, we make sure our coaches, everybody gets a three-point shot, everybody gets a layup. You know, so the screener gets a layup, and then we have two guys spotting up three-point shots. So, you know, we'll hand-to-hand, stop, hit the three, you know, just whatever it is. And uh, like I said, we'll warm up that way. Every practice, even if it's a light practice, we'll go half an hour just letting them play, letting them figure out how they want to play three on zero. You said something a second ago, love to just touch on again, which was beginning of practices, loving to touch some part of your offense. Could you maybe just go a little bit deeper on that as to why you thought earlier in the practice to go to some offensive principles as you warm up? Okay. I get this reputation of that's all we do is offense. So just to let you know, (laughs) that is not true. And just because we're really good offensively, the one thing that we try to do is have really good play offensive players play the best defense they can play. So you get into it, and I just, as a player, I just want to get into it. We'll stretch a little bit. I'll let the athletic guy do his thing. Okay, get him ready to go. But after that, it's like, you know, we will do some offense to warm up, full court, pass ahead, all that, just get him going, get him lathered up, go into a defensive segment that will always finish a defensive segment, either running out of it, you know, at least going, you know, getting from there to our offense as quick as you go, whether it's on a make and you get a ball in quick and go, then stop, do another defensive set. And so we're trying to work on both at the same time. But then if you're playing three on zero, see, I don't believe in four-man shell defensively, three on three. I mean, that's like, you know, you got a dinner party and you're setting the table for four people and you got five people there. It's like, (laughs) what you know? Like, you know, rotate. Well, you won't do that ever if you got five guys because that's not your rotation. Well, I see a lot of that stuff, so and I did it as a player. And I'm going, you got me rotating. I'm, that's not mine. That's the fifth guy that's not out here. 
So they're teaching you stuff that, you know, and I'm sure there's a principle in there and some coach can explain to me why that's good. I just haven't figured it out. But I'm going to a dinner party with five place settings and then work from there. And so just incorporate that. So in a practice, everything is defense, offense. Everything is for a purpose. Everything is quick. Everything is, if you talk too much, then the next game we found out by, you know, just years of doing it. If I talk too much, then players slowed down. They didn't react. Basketball is a game of reaction. And you have to get them to react without thinking. You can't think and play the game too much. You have to react to it. And that's just building good habits, getting out there, not overburden them. We always, it's like you have a racehorse and you give them an idea and an idea is a brick and you put it on their saddlebags and keep putting bricks on there. That racehorse is slowing down. Now you want them to go. You know, you wanted to ingrain it without them having to think about it jumps out they know what they're doing and they're reacting to it so just a little bit of that a little bit of this and a little bit of gotta have a feel you can't be afraid i would do clinics and stuff at the end of the clinic i say this is all great but i know 90 percent of you guys won't do it so i can tell you exactly what i do you're not gonna do it because they're either afraid to do it and i understand because if you go against the grain of what a traditional practice looks like or what coaches are doing then you got somebody sitting in the stands who's judging you, who's judging you on, yeah, but my grade school coach did it this way. How come he's doing it that way? And so if you don't have the players, you're not winning. So they look at that and they go, well, not because you don't have the players, it's because you do everything weird. It's kind of, you're not even stressing that. So it's hard to keep the faith. It's hard to, here's what we're doing. And this is right. You have a conviction, you go with it. You know, coaching is interesting. It's fun. There's nothing better. And I don't care what level you're on. It doesn't matter. I was coaching my son's AEU back. I think the NBA is on strike. And so I was practicing coaching him. I was getting excited about that. I couldn't wait for a game to come up yeah. and coach that. So it doesn't matter what level you're at. It's an enjoyable profession. If you don't get fired a thousand times and if you don't get, you know, <laughs> and parents and uh, fans just I'm constantly scream you, but you know, you have to have that conviction like, hey, I'm doing what I, the best I can do. And if it's not good enough, not a reflection on me. It's just, you know, it just didn't work out. Coach, just hearing you talk about going against the grain and all that stuff, I have to ask, was there ever a time when you yourself were not sure, hey, is this the way I should be coaching? Is this the best way to do it? Or, you know, you talk about having the conviction to do it. Was there anything that ever gave you pause in the kind of style that you preferred to play? Not really. I mean, <laughs> obviously, when you're packing boxes and moving, you're kind of like, well, <laughs> maybe this didn't work out too well. <laughs> but it was more, it wasn't basketball related. You know, when, when I first started, and it wasn't always like this. My first two years of coaching, I coached like everybody else. You know, you have to throw it in the post and you turn around and shoot it, you know. And we were losing. And I'm about ready to get fired from a team in Milan that, I've been there 13 as a player and two as a coach, and they're about ready. I mean, if it wasn't who I was, I'd have been gone. I was just a regular American or Italian, whatever. And we had that talent level, I thought, and the level, what we were happy, I'd be gone because they're very quick over there to <laughs> make changes. So I had to change. And that's not working. I have one of the best point guards who, Sasha Georgievich, in Europe at the time, and maybe the best ever, he's unbelievably good, wasn't playing well, had Antonio Davis at the center, who the papers were deeming we should change him for another American. And I'm thinking best American in the league. So it's like, what's wrong? So at that point, come in one day, we lost six in a row. Come in one day, I told my coaches, okay, here's what we're doing. We're benching the leading scorer on the team, which is a four, that we had to post up and got bogged down a lot. Open and put another shooter in at the two, move the two to the three, the three to the four, Antonio's going to be the sole big guy out there. And we're going to run, open the floor up, and let my point guard and Antonio put pressure on the rim, put the shooters out there and see what happens. We win the next 20 out of 21 games and just explode. And so from then, like I'm convinced, then you, you tweak it, you come to the NBA, start off in the NBA doing the same thing all other NBA coaches doing them because you're afraid to get fired. You're afraid to get criticized. You're afraid. And so I, you know, I said, you know what? And I got lucky because Phoenix, I had a management of the Colangelos, Jerry and Brian, who, hey, play the best five of you think, let's go. And that's when 
okay. And it took me a little bit to get there, but that's when Amari went to the five, Sean went to the four. And you know, you're fighting conventional wisdom. You're fighting other coaches saying, that's not going to work. You're going to kill these guys. You're going to run their careers. You're fighting the media, which were made up of mostly old players who played a certain way. That's not going to work. And, you know, my first year in Phoenix wasn't going to work. And we started off 32 and four. And then, well, they can start off that way. It won't last all season. Then we set a team record with 62 and 20. And well, that it's not going to work in the playoffs. Then we get to conference finals where you can't win a championship. Well, they got me there and didn't win a championship with it. And in my mind, there's other reasons, but you just have to have a conviction to do it the way you want to do it and go with it. Be sane. You can't be crazy. I mean, there are certain principles you got to do. You got to make sure the players are performing. Coach, I like to go back when you're talking about just your practices and that, you know, especially on defensive end, it never made sense to do the shell or 4 0. And across our conversations, you know, we've heard that a lot. I'd like to, though, ask why you think. So three on O, and I know you said you did three on three for offense with some GAs or other coaches as defenders. Right. Why on offensively you think three on O's have benefit and have a place than if you were to do three on three or four on O shell? Right. Well, the big thing is it's definitely a three on zero. It's a three man game because 90% of defenses will tag from the guy who you're going to lift up. You're coming from the side with one guy. And all my offense is kind of structured. Two guys, one in the corner, one in the high slot. And then a guy on the backside in the pick and roll. Almost everything we do, we try to end up with that. I don't like to go away from a a two-sided to the one guy. And the reason for that is that it's easier for the guy to tag and the other guy can rotate. So it's to me, it makes more sense to one, but is what, you know, I'm sure sometimes it randomly happens. So we're just trying to create that three-on-three. I'm not working on defense because my two stationary guys out there. Now, you could do it defensively if you wanted to, to work on that. And the other two guys are out. So you're guarding a specific action. So you could do that three on three, but not random shell drill where, you know, the guy up on top is going to go to the bottom, the box out, whereas another guy would do that. I don't see that as being efficient, but offensively, you're still getting into a three-man game if you isolate the other two guys. And then we'll throw the other two guys in and try different things. And, you know, some teams will come from the strong side. The bottom strong side will be the low man and keep the guy from tag because you've busted them so much. They can't tag that way. I think the Clippers, Doc Rivers, used to get the guy in the corner to come be the low man and you'd play that way. So we would work against that a little bit also. But just have to feel like what feels good, what you think, and keep practicing. But, the, you know, the biggest thing is repetition and making sure these guys are comfortable that what they're going to see. Coach, my question is, when building this midseason, when you're trying to figure out the health of the offense and how you're playing, were there any analytics, were there any stats that were really important to you and your staff when kind of building out the offense and making sure you wanted to hit certain numbers each night from that standpoint? Well, that final score probably is the biggest stat <laughs> sure. you can look at. Okay, as long as you know <laughs> yeah. that. And I love the analytic part of the game, there's no doubt. But the analytic part of the game for me was not as much as, okay, we've got to take 33s or 53. I don't know how many threes we have to take in a game because it depends on what you're going to do defensively. You're going to let us have layups all day. We're going to take layups. If you're fouling us, we'll take the foul shots. I don't care about the three-point shot. I use it as a weapon. It's always there. But if a defense decides to only give us threes, then we're going to take threes and we'll live with it. You know, a lot of coaches, I've heard this a lot. You have to understand what you're willing to die with defensively and offensively. And if it means one game against Golden State, we missed 23, I think 27 straight threes. Well, you know, they were good threes. That's what they gave us. We just missed them. So we got beat. And somebody said, well, did you ever think about quitting shooting threes? So if that's what they're giving you and they're stacking in the paint, we can't get in there then why would we quit shooting threes? We got to make them. At least few of them. Yeah, I didn't think we were going to miss 27. <laughs> but when you're on number 15, you're thinking, 16's got to go in, doesn't it? <laughs> 20's got to go in, doesn't it? Because they're good shots. So we're looking just to get a good shot. And preferably, it's either a layup, a foul shot, or a three. The mid-range is not good. I mean, it's been proven it's not good. I know it's trying to make a resurgence. 
And when I say that, you have to be smart enough to understand, depending on who's shooting the mid-range. Yeah, Kevin Durant shoot mid-range or Chris Paul or DeRozan. I could name a lot of names. Yeah. You let them shoot as many as they want because they're shooting about 55%. But if you got ordinary Joe who shoots 43% from mid-range, guess what? Don't let him shoot it. Or he shoots five, encourage him to shoot three and take a couple more. You got to sprinkle in something. You've got to get your overall percentage up. You got to get it to 55. You got to be 50 or above because as a team, if you're, and I've had a couple and I probably got fired because of it, but you have a couple guys taking them almost all the shots and their effective field goal percentage is 44. Can't win that way. He's taking all the shots. So either you don't shoot or you figure out a way you're going to shoot 55%. And that's by getting more layups. And that's the pace comes into it. That's using spacing. That's using more three point shots. So you encourage to shoot a little bit more threes. You know, if a guy's shooting three a game, he's a great shooter. If you're shooting 35%, then you need to shoot five, you know, and take out a mid-range. So at the end of the game, I will look and see what our mid-range is. And if that number is kind of low, great. But, you know, then you got to look at the game film. You got to look, are they good three-point shots? Are we putting enough pressure on the rim? There's so many involved. But what analytics did for me, was give me the confidence, okay, we lost, but the reason we lost, we took more open shots than they did. We just missed shots, or they made contested shots, and that happens. It's like Vegas. You go there, the odds are against you. You're not going to win most of the time. Every once in a while, you will win, but Vegas doesn't go, oh, shoot, we got to change the odds. No, there's a way to play it mathematically, and you need to do that. Now, in that are a lot of little nuances. A lot of stuff that a coach has a feel and a coach has to allow players to be who they are, but you don't force a bad shooter into shooting mid-range. And also defensively, I've heard it a thousand times. It's funny. Even in the same setting, a defensive coach is going, hey, we force them into mid-range contested shots. That's what we want. And the offense will come in. Yeah, we took a mid-range shot. Good shot. Wait a minute. The defensive guys, that's what they're trying to make you do. You hear it all the time, all the time. Coach, I'd like to just quickly jump back to your preference to have one behind the pick and roll for that lift and to isolate the tag. Right. Uh-huh. Were there any scenarios, whether it be defensively or player personnel, or maybe just philosophically why you were trying to get one behind the ball or versus putting two behind the ball or even flattening everyone and having a dunker spot filled? You know, I, I think that goes a little bit of the personnel you have and where, you know, the dunker spot can be filled if that, that's where the dunker needs to be. If it, if it can't do anything else, he needs to be down there. And it might be a small forward. It might be somebody that's a great defensive player that, yeah, I just don't think you can have two of them because surely the other side's not stupid enough to guard the guy who can't shoot. You know, so if you have one non-shooter and put him into the dunker or he's the pick and roll guy and hopefully he can put pressure on the rim. So you got to look at your personnel. And the reason I like it is because most coaches, 90% of defenses will tag with the weak side guy. If he's up above the pick and roll, I can't get down there and tag. So now that guy rolling down the backside is wide open for lobs, bounce passes, layups. And that's our main objective is to get a layup. And so you start with that concept. And you know, I've done it all. You know, you put him in the dunker, you put him in the corner. They've been everywhere. You know, so. I think a lot of it's personnel driven. You have to look at it. You have to experiment with it. You got to figure out what works for you. And you said a lot of your offense is three man games with the two others spaced out. Right. I'm assuming maybe it is personnel again, but as far as like any cutting from those two men, or were you always just preaching, let's space? Yeah. You know, I've gone all over the gamut. It's like they got to move. Well, where are they moving to? You know, it's like they got to cut most of the time. Okay, cut. They cut right into the, two-on-one or whatever. I mean, it's like you get players a little bit of a leeway, but too much movement. You know, they're moving. When the point guard's ready to pass the ball, they're not ready to receive it. And to coordinate that is not the easiest thing in the world. That's where, to me, turnovers happen. As a point guard, I want, I got a man there. I've got a man in the corner. I know they're going to rotate here. And when I come off, as soon as that guy rotates, I hit the guy back, I know where he is. Now, that guy happened to cut. He's not there. Oh, shoot. You know, so 
less turnovers is a huge in a game. And to be able to have the point guard know where everybody is. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes you need to cut. If I've got a non-shooter and there's three guys lined up on a side, let's say you do an open pick and roll, open side pick and roll, three guys, we will cut the, hopefully in the middle is the less best shooter. He'll go in, either he cuts in front of guys trying to lay up, or he pins guys in, you know, who are sagging in, like always defense, you know, nail hill, guys at the nail. Well, okay, be at the nail. Let's pin him in, kick it out to my shooter, make sure my shooter's out there, and we'll do that. Or the guy can't shoot, surely you're smart enough, you're on the floor. So surely you're smart enough to figure out, do I cut or do I pin guys in that have rotated and can't get out to my shooters? So we'll play with that. But just random movement. Like when I first came to the league, everybody kind of you ran the wings and they crossed underneath. God, I hate that. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and then they're going with the half the time when the point guard's ready, they're going away from the basket. It's like, well, I'm not going to pass to a guy going away from the basket. So now we started just running to the corners. But now that's more prevalent than crossing. I don't want anybody to be in the middle. You know, if, so as a point guard, I come down, that middle's open. That means I got to beat my man, get to the rim. The, the players are so good today. You can't guard a guy one-on-one. But now they got to start jamming the middle. Now we got three-point shooters open. That comes from pace. That comes from the pace you play. And, you know, it's like we tell our team that pace is a big deal because most coaches coach half-court defense, right? I mean, how long you stay, you stay over and over and over. Guard it this way, guard it that way. Here's their plays. We call two. They know what two is. You know, all that stuff. One of the best scouting reports I've ever had as some opposing team and left on the bench or something, you know, how they do shoot around and left the scouting report. So our coaches are reading what they say about us. And right when we first started, this was with Phoenix. And they said, I have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> they just do whatever. They'll shoot from wherever. But they'll do it fast, and I don't know what they're doing. And I'm sure that was their scouting report. And that's what I like. I don't want a coach to be able to go when they come down. You be there because they're going to do this. They're going to do that. We just play. We play random. We have principles, and we're going to share the ball, and we're going to run with the pace. But we're not going to do the same thing every time, and we're not going to call plays. Plays work sometimes in the middle of the year. But you get in the playoffs, every time a opposing coach yells, three. Our players are yelling three, three, three because they know the play. So it's like instead of teaching them plays, teach them how to play. You know, don't teach them to play. Anybody can learn to play. And anything I say, guys, say two things. One is my philosophy, and so it doesn't mean you know whatever. But two, it's never a hundred percent. There's always a gray area in there. And sure, we have plays, and we try to do it coming out of timeouts where we didn't call it, and you set up a play. And those are what stats. You know, stats that I look at. How effective are you? Because about 12 to 15 times a game that I'm able to call, you know, start of the game, start of the half, after every timeout, I can call plays. I can draw something up. And that's a stat I always look at. Do we lead the league in teams coming out of timeout scoring? Do we lead the league, you know? And that's really important to me because that's 12 times I can affect the game. You know, and if I'm beating a team, you know, if I can be effective 10 out of 12 and they're effective 6 out of 12, I coached them in eight points, and that gives me a leg up. So that's a stat we really harp on and look at. Did you encourage the throw-ahead pass? Now, outside of a clear, straight layup advantage, but if you had Steve Nash, did you want him still throwing that ball ahead? And how much ball movement did you want or did you care about prior to like getting into an actual attacking pick and roll? The first one, I would definitely encourage throwing ahead because I think I push pressure on the defense, and it makes the defense sink. Now, caveat. Who am I throwing it to? <laughs> There's some, some knuckleheads I wouldn't want to throw it to. And uh, I would have that conversation with my point guard in private. Don't throw it to that guy because God knows what he's going to do. But <laughs> I would say 90% of the time, we would definitely encourage throwing it up. And that wing would try to put pressure on defense, try to flatten them out, try to get to the rim. And we work on that every day, every day. You know, be a coach up there and you're going to drive it. If they cut you off and that ball goes right back to the point guard, and the center is coming down. He's watching all this. And he's timing. That ball comes right back to point guard. He comes down. He hits the point and goal. And that should create. And you got a single side. 
Two guys are already that guy sprint to the corner, a guy sprint, and they're sprinting. And it's really important. We show videos the first year, first three steps that you take from defense to offense are crucial. And you can't lope into it. It's like that ball goes up and you see us getting the rebound or it goes in. Everybody should be in a sprinter's block and gone. And now once you take three steps, then you can see there's the ball went out of bounds. They're not coming up. Then you can go on down and loaf into it. But we tried to really push that and push kicking the ball up. But to tell me you need six passes, 10 passes, one pass, I don't know. Depends on the team, depends. But, you know, the least amount of passes and you get a great shot, probably not going to turn it over. I do know that. I mean, somebody, and I hate to be catty, and I, you know, but we sit around, we don't do anything in the office. So it's like, let's just talk BS. And it's like, well, that team says they pass 300 times during a game. And I told James, hey, James, get the ball, pass it to PJ coming up five times so we can get it up to 300. You know, I don't even know what that means. You pass as much as you need to pass it to get a shot, a good shot. But for me to sit there and say, well, this game, we only passed the ball 200 times. I had to look at the film. Maybe the defense was so bad, you didn't even have to pass it, get a great shot. So I don't know. Everything's unique and everything's different. Every game is different. All, every team's different. And so I have a hard time even judging other coaches. I don't know what they told them. I don't know what, how they practice. Or I don't know what's in the film room. For me to criticize somebody else, I have no idea. And I do know that it's not an easy profession and it's to get them to play well. And you can see that hey, they're playing as good as they can play or they don't play as good as they can play. That's how I kind of judge coaches, but I don't know why. Could be the players, could be management, could be who knows what. But it's an interesting profession, that's for sure. We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics, a high-powered, affordable, an easy-to-use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit Hoopsalytics.com dot com slash glass that's hoopsalytics.com slash glass and now back to our conversation this has been awesome so far we actually want to transition out to a, a segment we do on the show kind of a quick hitting lightning round segment we play with every guest it's called start sub or sit and so what we do is <laughs> or what did i did somewhere i saw this <laughs> great yeah, so what we'll do is we'll give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, sub one, sit one, and then we'll have a fun little discussion from there with your answers. All right. This first topic has to do with leading through tough times. As we've talked about, you've had unbelievable teams and you've been on some teams, I'm sure, as a player and a coach that Never. there's been some tough stretches. <laughs> <Never>. <laughs> right. <laughs> All smooth sailing, baby. <laughs> yeah. So these are three different qualities of a coach that you feel would be most important when you're leading through tough times. So your start here would be what you think is most important. So start, sub, or sit, consistency. The second option is just simplicity, keeping things simple for players and coaches. And the third option is honesty with players and staff about the situation that you're in. Well, those are three qualities that I think you have to have all the time. You set one of those three, you might get in real big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. I think consistency has to be, you know, you got to be yourself, which means being hopefully honest. You got to say the right message, the same message you started with. And one thing a coach can get in trouble because you have other assistant coaches that have different ideas or whatever. And when times get tough, bang, 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 you got all kinds of ideas coming in and it might be inconsistent of what you want. You know, as a coach, I try to go on a road that I think is best for this team at this moment. And all of a sudden, you listen to other people, you're over on another side road. And that will confuse players and and players will lose faith. And so I'm probably, if I had to choose, only if I had to, you got to be consistent. Then you got to try to make it easy. And then you got to be honest. Now, I hate to put honesty on as a set because 
there are times you're saying, hey, guys, you're great. No, you're not. But you don't <laughs> tell them that. <laughs> you know, actually, you're playing like crap. <laughs> don't like most of you. So <laughs> you can't really say that. <laughs> but you have to be honest to who you are. And I think that's a consistency to what you're trying to do. And then you have to make it to where maybe the concepts are too difficult. Maybe you have to just make a simple form. I try to do that from the beginning anyway, but I think that would be number two. And then the third thing is honesty. And, you know, that is definitely with a caveat. Coach, I'd love to follow up with the honesty, actually, with your sit. And, and we're talking about tough times right now. And I'm sure having difficult conversations, honest conversations with players about their performance is a huge part of what you had to do. How would you approach those conversations with your team or with individual players or try to think about you know, getting everybody on the same page and balancing, like you mentioned, being honest with certain things and maybe obviously always not doing that. One of the hardest things of coaching is trying to get guys, everybody to buy in. And, you know, sometimes this happens. Sometimes you have great chemistry. I never had to formula yet how to develop that great chemistry. It's a lot of the individual players and how they react to things and, you know, type of people they are. Understanding that, you know, superstars have an enormous ego. You got to be really careful with them. You know, you have to do it in private. I don't think you can do it in front of anybody. And you have a lot of side conversations. You have a lot of conversations. You have a lot of talk. And they have to understand if they're also leading the team or if they're at one. Hey, look, like rules, team rules. Well, my 30-point score is two minutes late for a meeting. So I'm going to sit him. I will somebody averaging two points. You know, okay, sure. that's easy. Yeah. You're, you're not playing today. I'm really mad at you. But I'm not going to play the guy that's averaging 30. So you got to be careful with team rules. You know, we have a, hey, think about your teammates. If you're late, you're causing everybody to be late. You know, think about that. Don't think about, it's not about you. It's about your team. And you can try to work everything in to where they want to be there and create an atmosphere where they are protected. They love it and they like it. Easier said than done, but you try to be consistent in that. And then with difficult conversations, you know, I've had conversations, you know, players would not get the ball for a quarter, two quarters. And I could see that it's frustrating them because they're supposed to run to the corner and the defense is not leaving the corner, but we're scoring at will over here and they're just standing there. And I say, look, you know, that's part of the game. Right now, you're doing what's right for the team. But come and let's talk after three games. You know, if they're still doing that, then I've got to get you somewhere else. And we'll, we'll talk about it. But I can guarantee you, at the end of the year, your stats will be better than you've ever had in your career. And they go, oh, okay. So we just wait. Don't jump to the conclusion just because you hadn't touched the ball in three minutes that there's a drama going on here. And just constantly having that conversations with them, checking in how they're doing as people. So the conversations are a lot easier when you develop a relationship with them. And they shouldn't be real hard. You know, it's not like I want you to change totally. Now, if you're selfish, that's not changing, then you got to get rid of them. It's just, you can't play it. I mean, I, you know, it's like some people aren't going to change. Some people are who they are. And you try to work it and see if you can fit in a team content. But at the end of the day, if it's not something that you can work with, Either you or they got to go. And it's mostly the coaching has got to go. So that's, you know, <laughs> that's part of the business. But that's an intriguing part is how to have the conversations and try to be as honest as you can. You know, you're not going into it and go, hey, look, you're selfish and you're not playing well, you know, and you're killing the team. That doesn't usually end well, especially if that guy's got more power than you got. So you got to be careful how to phrase things and talk to them and, and hope they get it. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. At the beginning, you mentioned with consistency within your staff, maybe even looking outside of just, even if it's a good time winning, losing, doesn't matter, but how you look at managing your coaching staff, and especially now in the NBA when the staffs are so huge, just how you get everyone on the same page, how you empower them and make them feel like they have a purpose and that they're a valued member of the staff. That's something really important. First of all, each guy needs to think that you know, they have their own ideas and probably how they would like to do things, especially in tough times. And I don't blame them, you know, because an assistant coach will feel bad about that we lose, but they go home and go to bed. You know, where a head coach is like, 
on a couch in a fetal position, getting the hell beat out of him, you know, so a little bit of different <laughs> mentality. But I think the biggest thing is just have those conversations and, and be sure you include everybody into game planning or offense or when you have those meetings, the guy that maybe just the intern to be in those meetings. And if he's got something to add, say, hey, that's fine. You know, and I'll take, I've, I've had a lot of guys do a lot of work, you know, and they can be really helpful because they're going to do all the work. You know, bring me your ideas, bring me some tape, let me see what you're saying. And yeah, I'll use it. I'm not afraid to use it, afraid to do something differently, but understand here's our philosophy. We're not getting off this. This is what we're doing and have them part of it. I've had some great coaching staffs, great guys, and you just try to manage them the best you can and, and hope they're not selfish either. But you try to let them feel important. So you just make them feel like they're, they are part of the process. And they are part of the process. And if they can accept that, great. If not, then but you also got to be strong enough when times are tough to resist getting off the path you want to get for the team. Without being stubborn, I've been accused of everything. So, you know, you're stubborn. You won't change. Well, if I think that's the right way to go, I'm not changing. So it's kind of like, I don't even know what stubborn is. Stubborn means doing something wrong and staying with it. Yeah, I agree with it. But you got to show me why it's wrong. So it's, it's back and forth and not an easy answer, guys, on that one. <laughs> no, definitely not. All right, Coach. Our last start subsit, and I think it actually piggybacks pretty nicely off what we've been talking about, is we've loaded the challenge of coaching a great player. So the one is the challenge of finding ways to push your great player, to challenge him mentally, to keep him striving for more. The second one is alleviating his burden that comes with being the great player. Sometimes people associate being a great player also means he's your leader. Not always the case. Yeah. So just the challenge of helping him when he is looked upon as being a great player. And then the third one is building an ecosystem around him that the team can thrive. So finding the right pieces like we mentioned a little bit, the, the role players, the, the four other guys on the court that are going to be out there to help maximize him and your team? Those are tough questions. I'm trying to remember all of them. <laughs> so the thing about, well, first of all, the first one, most superstars in the NBA, in my experience, are highly motivated. They don't need me to go in, okay, let's go. You know, they're gone. Their whole goal in life is to be the best they can be. And what I try to do is make it fun for them, practices not burden them too much with stuff because they are hopefully playing close to 40 minutes and they are leading the team. So you try to have good conversations with them and talk to them how they feel, what's going on. You know, I've had a conversation with James Harden a lot of times. Uh, you know, James will ask me, you know, hey, I'm struggling this and that. I go, hey, James, I was a player and I can't even fathom what you can do. <laughs> you know, it's like, it doesn't even, now I'm going to tell you what to do. I can't even understand what you're doing. You're unbelievable. And I just try to build them up, try to get them feel they're invincible and that there's nobody on this planet that can guard them. There's nobody that should be able to, and be sure the team is functioning in a way that will get the best out of him as a player. And you hope, and it's a hope that he's not too selfish and you hope that you'll make the right play. And we will have the conversations about making the right play. You know, if you're leading the team, that means you're making the right play. And guys will respect that, that if you see somebody open, the ball gets there. They talked about him, you know, pounding, 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 pounding. So what? I mean, our offense is probably the best in the league. And so you're going to get on him for having the best offense in the league? Some of the arguments didn't make sense. It's like Luca, not... Nobody says he's pounding it. You know, what I mean? <laughs> sure he does, because he's the best that maybe he's ever played the game. You got to give these guys freedom to be as great as they can be, and talk to other players and how important the other players are. It's an ongoing conversation. You know, I love our other players. Pat Beverly was one of my favorite players to coach. PJ Tucker, I can go on and on. I don't want to miss one because they're all great in their role. And your role is this: this guy's going to do this. You're going to do that. And he could be your leader or not your leader. I think that's you know, a lot of times leaders like that. He's so good that he doesn't understand how other guys can't be that way. And they can say things that, eh, you probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> you know, it's like, so sometimes the best player isn't the leader. He doesn't know how to lead. But that's where the coach has to be in there. Keep having that dialogue and 
how to show your appreciation. You know, I've told PJ Tucker a thousand times, you'll come in, he's 0 for 5, and we lose. And he's worried about it. PJ, what are you worried about? You win the game in so many different ways. I don't care if you're 0 for 5, 0 for 15, you open, you shoot, you don't. You go in, you don't go in. I don't go home thinking, oh, God, I wish you'd make a shot. No, you just be PJ Tucker, be who you are, get us rebounds like you do everything you do. The rest of that stuff will come. So you try to minimize it. You try to put them in a good position, try to work with them. But it's mostly a psyche. You know, it's mostly how do you treat them as people and how do you treat them off the court, on the court, in the cafeteria when you're there. You, have, you know, it's like, how do you talk to them? And it goes into, hey, this feels good. You know, locker room. And you have even practices. I'm not beating a dead horse. Or I'm not, oh, we lost yesterday. It means we're really going to practice hard today. No, we're going to prepare the exact same way we did when we lost. We're preparing the exact same way because that's the best way to prepare. I'm not punishing you, though. Sometimes you lose. It's a thousand things that, that keep moving. And I can say something and then tomorrow I'll do something completely. You didn't say that yesterday. You know, it's like, and you got to have a feel for it. You got to. It's hard to explain. It's hard to, but being there, being present, you know, I like to be the first one into the office and I like to be there when all my players, I'm there. They want to come and talk to me, come and talk to me. I'm in the cafeteria. I'm in the training room, talking to player. I'm in the weight room, just talking to them. I don't tell them anything there, but I'm there. They know I'm there. I'm there. That to me is really important. Know that a coach is backing you hundred percent and we'll try to get the best we can. I know the three different options, the challenging them, the carrying the weight, the ego, the other players. The second one, the carrying the weight of being a leader. I know like we've talked about a couple of times, but like when your best players potentially aren't your best leaders or aren't your team leaders. A lot of that is the norm. Sure. They aren't. You know, they got there because, man, they want to be the best, no matter who I'm going to kill. You know, whether it's the defense or doesn't matter. And you got to respect that in there. That's why they're there. That's why you can't make them something they aren't. And so you just have to make sure the other guys are leading in their way. I mean, Steve Nash never said hardly a word as a player. Never a word. He just let by He just plays as hard as he can play. And maybe twice a year he'd get mad or get upset with the team. So there's different ways to lead also. I mean, James Harden hardly missed the game. And he would practice with an ankle that was swollen. And the trainer says, you're going to miss the next two games. He goes, yeah, right. He goes out practice, not only plays. He led in his way. You know, you go down to different guys. I mean, Kobe led in his way. And that was a tough way. Not that I agreed with it all the time. But it was a tough one. But you knew when he was coming, he was going to murder somebody. He was coming at you. You know, Pat Beverly led in his way. He's bringing it. You know, he's not at PJ. I just go on and on. And I keep saying the same guys, but there's so many guys that you make it to the NBA. I mean, you've led, you've been great. Your work ethic is good. So there's a lot of qualities that are fantastic. Now it's just got a lot of alpha dogs and you just got to mold that. And that each situation is different. And it's hard to say, I would do this or that guy's this. That's almost impossible. You have to be there. And that's why I think, like Woody Allen said, you know, showing up is, 80% of the process, you got to be there. You got to be on the floor with them. You got to see what happened. You got to notice the guy that's pissed in the corner that needs some talking to and needs some help. You got to notice those things. You got to not take it for granted. Oh, you'll get over it. No, they might not. Then so you got to make sure everything's running smooth. On that note, coach, would your conversations or how you maybe led change depending on the leadership of the team? So like you said, if you knew Kobe was a little bit more intense, would you make sure to like, hey, I got to make sure I'm Mr. Nice Guy, or if you're on a quiet team where no one's going to call someone out, then I got to be that guy. Yeah, with NBA, I've never really been on a quiet team. They all call each other out. So, and that's good, you know, because a player can take it from a player a lot easier than they can take it from a coach a lot of times. So that's good. In college or high school, you know, they probably haven't developed yet, you know, where they can do that. And not that you call them out. You just say, hey, guys, you know, we got to do this. And, but you can't be afraid of it either. Hey, we as the staff is just going to try to get you better. Now, whether you show up in that film, we didn't put you there. You're there for a reason. And we're just showing you the film. It's not personal. And it's not like I'm going to go home and talk bad about you. This is how we're going to get better. It's you today. and It's John tomorrow and Bill the next day. So be it. But, you know, in the NBA, sometimes you would, hey, we got, Two of this superstar film clips, you better get two of the other one. 
you know, so we do play little games that because they're counting, they're watching. Oh, you called me out five times. You only called him out once. That's BS. You know, it's very petty, very like, oh boy, here we go. But you do have to be aware of that. And though, like I said, every situation is unique. And yeah, you got to be tough sometimes. But I think the newer generation, they, and I function better. You got to know the guys. I function better that a coach is behind me 100% and told me what I needed to do, but not questioned me or put in doubt my mind. Build me up. Let me be as good as I can be. Coach me up instead of coaching me down or berate me. I don't think that works that much. I mean, maybe you're getting so mad. Early in my career, I was a little bit more hot-headed than, you know, I don't know if the world's changed. I've changed. But I just think building people up and getting an honest relationship with them and say, we're just here to help you. Is the best way to go. And also, just real quick, that's why at the end of a game, don't go into the locker room and start telling mistakes. I've done that a couple of times. So you come in off a game, I'm mad. And I said, and John, you didn't box, you know, whatever. Then you go back and look at the tape and it wasn't John, it was Bill. Or, you know, is that really wasn't his fault. He was doing this. So you make sure that I had a coach in the this in Italy. Come in, okay, guys, we lost. Let's go get it. We'll be a practice model. Let's go for it. And that's it. And just be careful of coming in ranting and raving and talking, right, we got to play better than this. Because most players are sitting there going, yeah, you did a great job. You know, so I was that player. And, you know, it's funny, real quick, my first year is coaching. So I'm in and I was kind of hot-headed back then. But so I would come in and I'm yelling, screaming, not yelling, screaming, but I'm kind of animated, talking to the players. Then I walk out of the dressing room. And as soon as I walked out, I walked back in and said, okay, I know you guys are going to talk about it. Because I was here last year doing the same thing <laughs> to the other coach. So I get it. I'm an idiot. Let's figure this out. This, you know. So you got to gotta know how to diffuse the situation and just try to teach them as well as you can. Well, Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for playing that little segment with us. That was fun. Coach, we got one last question for you before we end the show. Before we do, we really appreciate your thoughts and your time today. This was awesome. So thank you for coming on. This is fun for me. You guys are great. Hey, good luck in a uh, career that maybe you should really rethink <laughs> your career path. <laughs> Coach, our last question for you. It's one that we ask every guest that comes on, and it's what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? My best investment when I was eight years old, I started playing basketball and fell in love with it. And I worked five, six hours a day the rest of my life and developed my skills as much as I could get to the NBA because it opened doors going to Italy, playing for 13 years and then coaching. I personally, I don't know if I would have done that route. So becoming the best player that I ever became was the best investment. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. You get lucky, you get right time, right circumstance. There's so much luck plays into all this, but you try to do everything. You try to invest in relationships. You know, when I was in Italy, we had a lot of scouts that would come over. So you go to dinners and you talk to them and you get a rapport with them. So every dinner that I did or every time I took them around Milan and show them the sights or whatever, that's an investment. You know, you would do it voluntarily because they're good guys and it's fun. But at the same time, still working toward your future. So going to camps, uh, talking to coaches, never know when you hook on the right guy that will help you with your career. You never know when that door opens. So just to be amicable, be around, like I said, as against participation is always being there. And we always try to be a participant and just went with my instincts and who knows what'll work. You know, you try everything. When I was in Italy, after three years of coaching, I decided I want to go to the NBA and try it as an assistant coach or whatever and writing letters to all my former teammates or players that I knew that were coaches. I didn't get a single letter back, nothing. You know, it's like zero. And, you know, so then just got lucky, you know, his circumstances, then get lucky again. So a lot of us that, but I was always around, you know, I was always trying to help myself further my career and then have some success. And it took off. And again, just been in the right place, right time. So I, mean, I think just loving basketball is probably the best investment I have, but it doesn't always work out that way. I don't want to, you know, the Pollyanna, oh, yeah, I don't work for everybody. No, it doesn't. You know, you got to be lucky. That's why I'm thinking, you two, you send me your resumes. Y'all might want a different career <laughs> path. I was looking back and I'm looking, oh my gosh, it could have gone off the rails real quick. No, Absolutely. I think that's in everything. That's life. Just attack it. Do the best you can. Enjoy it. 
whatever level it is, enjoy the hell out of it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>